And it is such a blessing to have each of you with us. We're going to dismiss if there are any children that would like to go to Children's Church. You see Miss Amy to my left and your right, and she is waving for kids to come over there to her, so I know that they will have a great ministry. I mentioned that there is a freedom that we experience here in the United States that is a little bit different than the freedom we experience in other areas around the world. I will tell you that I experience freedom not talking about American freedom. I was thinking about this this morning. In 1990, in August of 1990, I remember kneeling at an altar and asking Jesus to become the Lord of my life. At that moment, I experienced a freedom that had been very foreign to me before. At that moment, it doesn't mean that I became a perfect individual, but I knew what it was to know the grace of Jesus Christ. And I knew at that moment that if I were to die, that I was ready to meet the Lord. And I discovered along the way that a part of that freedom that I received that day was a freedom to no longer be enslaved by the sins of this world. I have been set free. That's what Independence Day is about for me. Maybe for some of you, it's about what Christ has done for you. Maybe it's just what, because of the fact that you live in this nation, but the reality is Jesus offers us a freedom that is far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. Let me also say that the United States and the freedoms that we have, it's a great thing, but this is also a great case study of what happens when a nation experiences victory, yet its heart is not truly fixed on God. Before I get into all of this, please note that what I'm about to share with you could also be shared on an individual basis. We are a nation that has seen incredible blessing and prosperity. I don't know if anyone would disagree with that statement. Yet we are also a nation that has seen unbelievable turmoil. We have redefined sin, somehow making it normal. We have pitted ourselves in extreme positions finding no common ground with those whom we disagree. And even during times of great rejoicing and blessing, we find it difficult to actually enjoy them as we're constantly looking toward the next tragedy to take place. A side note, a partial blame, I partially blame the media because they know that a crisis or conflict will always drive up their viewership. So even when things are going well, they need to have our next crisis sitting there ready and waiting to report on. But don't just blame the media. We are very attentive to the negative as a people. I believe that the root of this is found in the absence of God within our nation. I know we are one nation under God. We have referred to God's blessing upon this nation, but I declare to you that part of the problem is the absence of God within our nation. We have sought his blessing, but we don't want his authority or his accountability. I'm reminded of Joshua chapter 1, as Joshua and the Israelites were instructed to be strong and courageous. Actually, they are instructed over and over again to do so. In verse 6, in verse 7, again in verse 9, and later in verse 18. With each encouragement, they are given a reason as to why they ought to be strong and courageous. Joshua, you are to be strong and courageous because you are about to lead these people to inherit this land that I had promised to your forefathers. In addition, Joshua, you are to be strong and courageous knowing that God will be with you wherever you go. But wedged between, in between the be strong and courageous statements, there is one statement that is given a little extra emphasis says, be strong and very courageous. Now, it doesn't sound all that different. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. It's not that big of a difference, except obviously there is emphasis for the second one. You may ask the question why. At least I ask the question why. Verses 7 and 8, let me read it to you. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. 
Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. In verses 6 and 9, Joshua has promised success. God is going to grant you victory. Joshua, you are going to lead these people. You're going to inherit this land, and I will go with you. But there's something very important that you cannot neglect. Be careful to obey the law of Moses. Don't turn from it. In fact, meditate on it day and night. The point is that if God gives you all the blessing that you've been searching for, much like God has blessed this nation over and over again, yet you do not have a heart that is fixed on him, then you will still be walking in defeat. As I've shared this with those coming out of addiction, I've pointed out the obvious defeat that often occurs. Imagine fighting to overcome your addictive lifestyle only to find yourself drug-free, but no closer to God than when you started. What a waste. Likewise, our nation has experienced many struggles, and the Lord's blessing has rested upon us for a long time. Yet if our hearts are not fully surrendered to God then we are no better off than when we started. Add to that the examples that we've already seen in this study. People like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they were blessed by God, given great responsibilities as priests who would lead the people in worship. Yet their hearts were not fully yielded to the Lord, and the result was death. Then you have Saul, a man who was chosen to be the first, the very first king of Israel. How great would that be? Yet his selfish pride and arrogance would lead to the throne of God being passed to David instead of to Saul's son. In both cases, with the priestly family and with King Saul, all the blessings in the world could be seen. But these individuals did not have a true heart for God, which left them broken. It left them in bondage and incomplete. Only David is seen as having a heart for God. He is defined as a man after God's own heart. And although he is clearly imperfect and it's revealed through his relationship with Bathsheba, his pure heart would be revealed in his love for God and even his fellow man. The best way to put it is that David would be revealed as an incredible man of grace. The term grace is literally defined. By the way, Lee, I had actually already had my sermon set up before you use this in your Wednesday night lesson. Just want you to know I didn't cheat off of you. The term grace is literally defined as unmerited favor. It's when you deserve punishment, but instead you get something good. You are granted favor. Now, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 today, and if some of you want to turn there, that would be great. But while you're looking there, let me share something very important with you. First, I want to make clear that what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 likely did happen just as it is described. This is an historical record of what happened. It's not just some allegory. But I also want you to realize that what takes place in this passage also serves as a symbol of what Christ does for you and for me as he shows us unmerited favor. Now you may wonder how David is so familiar with grace. I want you to think for a moment about his journey to becoming the king. On the one hand, David knows from the very beginning when Samuel shows up to anoint the next king of Israel at his house, David knew that he was the least deserving of this honor, at least according to the social standards of their day. As we stated last week, David is the youngest and the smallest of eight brothers. He is inexperienced, and it even appears that his family did not truly believe that he was worthy of the role. In fact, as Samuel shows up, his father Jesse basically throws a party. 
invites all of the sons except David. David didn't even get invited to this party because nobody expected that he would be the one who could become king. He was the least deserving. David knew that he was undeserving, yet David received much grace. But David also showed much grace. He showed grace to Saul, the former king who set out to have David killed. David had been an incredible blessing to Saul. He played music for him. He won battles for him. Last week, we talked about David defeating Goliath. In many ways, David made Saul look good over and over again. Yet Saul could read the handwriting on the wall. Saul knew that people were loving David, and it wouldn't be long before they would want David as their king. So in order to maintain a tight grip on his kingdom, he sought to have David killed. Well, on one occasion, as recorded in 1 Samuel 24, David has the opportunity to put an end to Saul's pursuit of him. I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but David and Saul end up in a cave, and Saul doesn't know that David is there. David could easily take the life of Saul, but instead David cuts off a piece of Saul's cloak, almost as a, I want you to know how close I was and what I could have done to you. David could have very easily had Saul killed, but David showed him grace instead. And then following the death of Saul that would eventually happen at someone else's hand, David actually composes a song to honor Saul and Jonathan. By the way, Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan was actually a friend of David. Listen to the words of David as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. Are we talking about the same Saul, the same one who tried to kill David, yet here he is actually singing about how good and gracious he was. I'm going to tell you, David understood grace. Well, Saul is killed. A cha changing of the guard begins to take place. In fact, uh, alongside Saul, three of his sons are also killed in battle. And the logical direction for the people is to go to the one that everyone else loved, which was David. And we see at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8, what takes place. Listen to chapter 8, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. So as we arrive here at 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is king. He has shown great power and authority as he found victory over various nations. Yet once again, we are introduced to the grace of King David. I'm going to do something I don't always do. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you. And I want you to recognize there are some great things for us in here. But keep in mind as you hear this this morning about how familiar David was with grace. This is what it says. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, his he is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amil. When Mephibosheth, and I'm going to mess up his name today, and you're just going to have to deal with it. I'm going to do the best I can. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? 
Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Now, I got to tell you, it's a curious story, and it does seem odd that I would choose to read all 15 verses of that to you today, because honestly, there's a lot of names in there, and we're looking at that and thinking, what is going on in this passage? Certainly, David could have taken vengeance on anyone associated with King Saul, and everyone would have seen that as a justifiable action. In fact, even Mephibosheth is in fear as he has an encounter with David. That's why David has to say to him, don't be afraid. That means he clearly was afraid. But David, partially because of his friendship that had developed between Saul's son, Jonathan, and himself, David would choose to show grace instead of wrath. Now, I want you to notice three ways that David blesses Mephibosheth in this story. Some of them take a little bit of understanding, and some of it is very simple to see, but man, this passage is so full of grace, and it's something that ought to apply to where we are. The first thing I want you to see is that the blessing included personal redemption. When I think of Mephibosheth, there are two things that come to mind aside from the fact that his name is hard to pronounce. On the one hand, he is the grandson of a failed king. In a manner, his family heritage makes him a loser. In another way, it makes him a threat to a new king. What if somewhere down the road, this Mephibosheth chooses to lay claim to the throne? Remember that his grandfather was actually the first ever king for Israel. If anyone could claim the throne aside from David's sons, it might be this man. In fact, with these factors in mind, it is possible that Mephibosheth would rather people not even know who his grandfather was. I want you to note that David didn't even know that this individual existed. David had to ask someone else, is there anyone left from Saul's family? It's almost as if Mephibosheth has been living under an assumed name. He's been in the witness protection program for a little while. He doesn't want everybody to know who his grandfather was. He'd rather blend into the crowd. Grandpa was a loser, and I definitely don't want to be seen as a threat to the new king, David. But there's also another side to this. Not only is he the grandson of a failed king, but he is also a man who is lame in both feet. In fact, this is mentioned twice in 13 verses. That means this is a significant description for us. It doesn't take a genius to understand why. If an individual had any type of disability in their culture, they were immediately assumed to be two different things. First, they were assumed to be sinful men. Do you remember when the disciples and Jesus saw a man who had been born blind? And the disciples said to Jesus, who was it that sinned that this man might be born blind? There was this assumption that if someone had any type of ailment, any type of infirmity, that the reason must be sin. There's something ungodly. They are getting what they deserve. Can you imagine Mephibosheth going through life with the idea, with the stigma that he must be a sinful man and he's just getting what he deserved. At stakes, especially since the assumption often wasn't true. By the way, all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we use that as our foundation, all of us should have some type of infirmity where others could look at us and say, you're getting what you deserve. Clearly, Mephibosheth was being singled out because of his ailment. But the other thing that a disability meant was that you had little value to the community. You were more likely to be viewed as some type of burden instead of a blessing. And typically such an individual, at least at that moment in time, would have been marginalized at best. Well, Mephibosheth knows this. He knows about the failed grandfather who tried to take David's life on more than one occasion. And he knows that he is viewed by most as some sort of outcast. In fact, listen to his own words. When David starts promising good things to this man, in verse 8 he says, What is your servant that you should notice, listen to what he says, a dead dog like me? He does not see himself in a good way here. In other words... Why would anyone want to bless me? He's got two strikes against him. My family heritage, my physical ailments, and the third is probably not far behind. But David offers this broken man the opportunity at personal redemption. And we'll talk about the property thing in just a moment, but What I want you to see first is that David offers him the opportunity for a new identity. Mephibosheth will be more than a grandson of Saul. He is going to eat at the table of King David. In fact, there is even a reference in our passage where he says, He will eat as one of my sons. He will not be treated as a servant in the house of David, but he will be treated as a son of the king. Instead of people seeing you as a burden to society, David makes him a blessing. David instructs others to care for the property and make the land profitable. But since he's eating at the household of David, it's not like they are working simply to prepare food for him. His food is already being provided. He gets to eat with the king every day. But his land can be productively used to meet the needs of others. This is the total transformation that's taking place here for Mephibosheth. His personal redemption is complete. Surely his feet were still lame, but he is now a part of the royal family. What an incredible transformation that is made available to him. Well, the second blessing that is included from Mephibosheth is property restoration. The family lands that have been granted to Saul, they're restored. This suggests that Mephibosheth was not living on that land that was previously connected to his family, perhaps because of grandpa's failures or perhaps because of his inability to care for the land. Either way, he is basically a wanderer without a place to call home. But David gives him a place to call home. David makes things right for him. And by the way, this was a cultural thing that was consistent with the Israelites as well. When the land was originally distributed among the Israelites, when they went into the promised land, each family received an allotment of land. It's possible that over time, a family might lose access to that land. Perhaps they had some kind of debt, and in order to pay it off, they gave up their land. But there was always a plan of property restoration. Every 50 years, the Israelites had what was known as the year of Jubilee, as described in Leviticus 25, verse 1 to 13. When this year arrived, all debts were to be forgiven. All property restored and slaves were to be set free. It was kind of like hitting the reset button for everybody. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that this was taking place. God has always been about restoring his people. And then the final blessing that we see from David to Mephibosheth is the promised relationship. I mentioned this already, but Mephibosheth is not invited 
merely to serve David. He's not invited just to watch from the outside as God works in David's family. Instead, Mephibosheth will eat from David's table. He will be treated like a son to David. Consider how valuable this must have been for Mephibosheth. Based on his own poor view of himself, I'm like a dead dog. It is safe to assume that others had also treated him as an outcast. Yet here, the king of Israel is inviting him to be treated as his own son. He will eat at the table with the most important figure in the entire kingdom. And not just on special occasions, but every single day. And what a great day this must have been for Mephibosheth. But I want to point out one last thing to you before I get to the application. The application is so important for us today. I want you to notice that there is only one person in the entire kingdom of Israel who could have made this happen. Only the king could grant these things completely. Sure, there might have been someone of great wealth who might have been able to buy the property back and Mephibosheth could have gotten his property back. Absolutely. Or perhaps there are others that would have taken him into their home at some point or another. It is unlikely because of the culture that existed and the stigma that would have come with Mephibosheth. But the reality is there is only one person in the entire kingdom that could have restored all of those things. Only the king could have done that completely. I assume that you have already figured out some of the application stuff here this morning, but I want to share it with you anyways. First, understand that we can all relate very well to Mephibosheth. On the one hand, our family heritage is less than perfect. In fact, my mom and dad were both sinners. My grandparents, they were sinners too. Come to think of it, my great-grandparents were as well. And I could go down the line and I could say probably everybody else beyond that also. The result is a whole line of failures. It's not an insult to them. It's just the reality. Sin carries with it consequences. Doesn't mean that they were any worse than anybody else. It's just the reality that we are all born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature becomes a part of our identity. When people look at us, they often see us as angry or deceptive or adulterous or addicted or perverted or whatever other term you might choose to include or whatever other term you might have been labeled as. That becomes our identity. An identity that leads to failure. By the way, I wonder how many times we have labeled others forgetful of the fact that there was a time that we too carried an identity that was based on those things. What a horrible thing for us to forget that God changed our identity. Add to that the many forms of brokenness that we carry. It's not always being lame and having lame feet or it's not even always physical. Our brokenness results in those feelings of inadequacy, those feelings of regret. Our brokenness so often becomes a part of who we are. We remember all the things that we've done and we're painfully aware of our own imperfections. And we may see ourselves as nothing more than dead dogs. No better than anybody else. In fact, maybe even a little bit worse than everybody else. Yet God desires to give us value once more. He longs to redeem us, giving us a new identity. He wants us to be known not by our brokenness, not by our failures, but as children of God, a part of the family of God. But I want you to notice one other thing associated with this real quick. Mephibosheth is immediately taken in as a part of the family, but he still had to deal with brokenness. Verse 13 reminds us that his feet were lame. Look, as long as you are in this world, you will have to deal with brokenness. 
See, the thing is, at the very beginning, when Ziba is talking about this son of Jonathan, he defines him telling where he's at, and he mentions both of his feet are lame. David takes him into his home. He gets a new identity. I'm not the same person that I was. And in the very last verse, it says, and his feet were lame. So often we almost expect that God is going to deliver us from who we've been and there'll be no baggage. But the truth is, Mephibosheth still had baggage even after his identity has been changed. As long as you are in this world, you will have to deal with with brokenness, but that's not where you will find your identity. And there's the difference. You see, so often we find our identity and our failures and our brokenness and all the things that are imperfect and all of the things that we've done wrong in our lives. Today, I find my identity, I find my freedom in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I find it in the King who has taken me in. Likewise, we talked about property restoration. When you surrender your life to Christ, I am not going to deceive you by telling you that you are going to become wealthy and overflow with lands. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? It's cool if it happens to you. And it did happen for Mephibosheth, but it might not happen for you and me. Instead, what I will tell you is that God does promise you an even greater reward than any lands that you have ever seen in this lifetime. And I will tell you, I've seen some beautiful lands. Living out in Colorado, we saw some of the most beautiful places you could ever imagine. There's a place that's known as the Garden of the Gods. It is incredible. By the way, there is only one God. I was just giving you the name of the place. My ride to work every day was looking up at the top of Pikes Peak and all the way up to even August. You could see snow-capped mountains year-round. What an incredibly beautiful place to live. We're up in South Dakota where we have been and seen the Badlands and all these beautiful mountain ranges that are there or our trips overseas to do mission work. We've seen some incredibly beautiful places, but none of them can compare to what God has promised for those who will place their trust in him. I will tell you that God does promise you an even greater reward. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come back and take you that you also may be where I am. And this place which the Lord is preparing is far more beautiful than anything on this side of heaven. In fact, I marvel at the description that John gives in the book of Revelation. He gives a vision of what heaven is like, and it is amazing. But he's trying to put into human terms something that humanity had never seen before. He talks of streets of gold and a crystal sea and all kinds of other things that are amazing, but the highlight will not be a thing. It will be the person of God himself. That's what I look forward to. This leads to the final blessing that awaits us. It is the promised relationship with God. We will be able to sit at the table with Jesus, but we will even more than that be able to sit even on the lap of Jesus. We'll be able to speak directly with him in a way that humanity has longed for over centuries. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What a great reward it is that awaits us. We will sit at his table. We will eat with him. And it will be greater than anything that you or I could ever have imagined. My question for you today is simply this. Do you know the grace that we see in David and Mephibosheth's story? Do you know the grace that is available to you today? God desires to give you a new identity 
that carries real value, more than just changing your name, changing who you are. And he offers you great reward, but not one that's temporary. Finally, he invites you to a great banquet feast. And all of these are only made possible through the grace of one person, Jesus Christ. Do you know the grace that is in this story today? In just a moment, we are going to participate in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. In many ways, this is a rehearsal. Because there will come a day that we will all gather together and eat. And when I say we, we will all gather together and eat, I'm referring to those who are in Jesus Christ. There will come a day where we will gather around a table and we will celebrate in a supper with the Lord. Actually, we're told that uh, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will answer the door, I will come in and I will sup with him or I will eat with him. What a great day that will be. I'm reminded of the Last Supper when Jesus gathered together with his disciples. They were preparing for the crucifixion, even though the disciples did not fully understand that the crucifixion was around the next corner. What a great opportunity this was for them to just enjoy the presence of the Messiah. It was the time of Passover, and everyone had heaven in many ways on their mind. They knew what the Passover was about. The Passover was a celebration that originated in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. As the Israelites are in bondage in, is in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord granted them an opportunity to be set free. And the Passover actually was the last plague that came upon the Egyptians. It was the final plague where literally anyone who had the blood of the lamb sprinkled on their door, they were spared the punishment of this plague. But anyone who did not have the blood of the lamb sprinkled on their door, they had to deal with death. Firstborn son that would be killed. And the next morning when everyone awoke and they realized that not all of their children were still with them, weeping and mourning and crying could be heard throughout the land, but the only places where that was not present were in the homes where the blood of the lamb had been spilt. The disciples did not recognize that Jesus was the lamb whose blood was about to be spilt, but they knew what the Passover was about. It was about freedom. It's about people being taken from bondage and being given life. That's what Jesus does. As those disciples gathered at the table, Jesus said to him, said to them, "This is my body broken for you." He's taking normal ordinary bread. "This is my body that is broken for you. Every time you eat this, I want you to remember my body being broken for you." Again, his body hadn't been broken yet. He then took the wine and he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They knew this. He said, every time you drink this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. What he's doing is he's calling them to remember not only the Passover, but the blood of the lamb being shed so that people can be moved from bondage into freedom from death into life. Today we celebrate the freedom that has been made available to us in Jesus Christ. We celebrate the past, what happened at the Passover. We celebrate what happened at the cross, but we also celebrate the fact that there is a day that is coming that we will be able to sit at the table once more with Jesus and rejoice with him over the fact that we have been set free. I look forward to that day, and I sure hope that you do. I want you to know that if you do not already know the grace of Jesus Christ, it is available to you today, just as it was to Mephibosheth, just as it is to you right now. If you already know it, and this ought to be an opportunity for us to simply say thanks. We're going to pray, and as I pray, I'm going to uh, 
lead you in a prayer as well, a prayer of confession. If you need to pray as a part of this, as a confession, maybe you've allowed sin to remain in you. Maybe you've never been set free. I want you to know you can be set free today. Maybe you've been set free, but the truth is you keep allowing things back into your life that don't belong. Well, now's the time to say, Lord, I'm yours, and I don't want to be that person anymore. We, we said these pledges of allegiance. Maybe it's time for us to make a pledge of allegiance to our God that I will no longer compromise and allow sin to have such a important place in my life. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, I come before you today. I thank you for the grace that you have extended to us. Lord, every individual in this room today has received grace. We may not always recognize the grace that is being given. We may not always appreciate the grace that's being given, but you have shown us incredible grace. Just the ability to wake up this morning is only by your grace. To live in a land that is free, where we can do things that other people around the world wish that they could do, it is grace. And we recognize that today, and we simply say, thank you. But the greatest grace that we have ever received and will ever receive is the grace that comes through your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on the cross. For those who already know you today, I thank you that that grace has been received. That I am no longer the same person that I was before. That I have, I, I have a new identity in you. That I have a hope of eternal reward and even more than that, I have the opportunity to have a great relationship with you. Thank you for that grace. Perhaps there are some in here today that do not yet know that kind of grace. Lord, I pray that you would grant forgiveness of sins. You call us in your word to confess our sins. And you promise that if we do, that you will forgive those sins. So right now, I ask that you would forgive any sins that we have allowed to exist in our lives. Lord, as we confess them to you right now, we ask that you would forgive us and show us grace. Give us not only forgiveness, but change our identity. Give us a promise of a great reward and give us that opportunity, that incredible relationship with you. Lord, make this more than a ritual, but let it truly change who we are. Father, as we come before you right now, Lord, we thank you for this kind of grace. I do pray that as we participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that this would be an opportunity for us to simply remember how we got here, your grace that made all this possible. But then also, I pray that you would help us to look forward to what is ahead. But we look forward to the day that we genuinely get to gather at a table with you celebrating all of the great victories that you have won on our behalf, seated alongside all of the saints that have gone before us, but even more than that, seated in the presence of an almighty, all-loving, gracious God. Father, we so look forward to that day. Lord, allow this time to be a celebration, not only of what has already happened, but what is to come. And we'll give you praise for what you do. Bless these elements that they're just ordinary elements, but they represent something so much bigger. Bless them now. In your name we pray. Amen. I've asked a few individuals to come, and they're going to help me serve communion this morning. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to set up multiple stations here in the sanctuary so you can come and receive. What I would ask you to do is, uh, as... We're not going to have someone release the rose as you feel led to come up. Sometimes it is easier if you just start at the front and work your way back. I will ask that as you come up to receive the elements, so you, I'm going to ask you to come out the left side of your pews and then go back the right side so y'all are not running into each other. But I'm also going to ask you, if you would, after you receive the elements, take it back to your pews. If you're one of the first ones that come up, you're not going to have much time before you come up but you're going to have to wait for everybody else to get those elements. So take this as an opportunity to pray. Maybe it's an opportunity to confess. Maybe there's sin you've allowed. You need to address it before you participate in the act of communion. 
Maybe it's an opportunity simply to say, thank you, God, for the grace that you have given. Maybe you've taken it for granted. It's an opportunity for you to say, Lord, I don't deserve this. I am like a dead dog, but you have made me alive and you've given me a hope. And if that's the case, and you should be celebrating it. If you're one of the ones toward the back, you have that opportunity while you're waiting for your opportunity to come up. Just take the opportunity to pray and to allow the Spirit to work in you. Maybe that's what you need to pray. Lord, in this time, Lord, work in my heart. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I have a hope, and I know that there is a great reward that's coming, but Lord, I want you to change me today. Maybe I've allowed things to exist. I don't want to be that person. I want to be your son, your daughter. So I encourage you. I'm going to ask those who are supposed to come and help me serve if y'all would come up and help at this time, and then we will participate in the uh, breaking of bread together. Jimmy, Jimmy. Let me get you to help me. We invite you at this time to come and receive the elements of communion.
that last night, he took the bread, something that would have been used at every meal, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. He didn't intend for this to be a once a week, once a month thing. Every time you eat, I want you to remember what I did. I allowed my body to be broken and my blood to be shed. He said, every time you eat this, if you would. You've got these cups that you still have in your hand and for some reason it went down the wrong way and I've had to cough multiple times since then. I'm I'm surprised I'm the only one in the room that that happened. (coughs) That's what I ask. There are cup holders in the pews in front of you. If you'll set it in there, we'll come back through and we will clean those out afterwards. It is such a blessing to have you with us today. My sincere greatest hope for you is not that you understand the freedom we have as American citizens but that you understand the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, because that's a freedom that will last. And I celebrate that with you today. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.